Welcome to Profiles, a weekly program that introduces members of our community, along with visiting artists, scholars, entertainers, and other notable figures to the WFIU audience. I'm Yael Cassander, and our guest today is the artist Judy Dater. Judy Dater is a photographer who first captured the attention of the art world and the general public when Life magazine printed her 1974 photograph of the elderly photographer Imogene Cunningham and the model Twinka Tebow in Yosemite. It was the first frontal nude, by the way, ever to appear in those pages. Dater went on to collaborate with Jack Wellpot on the book Women and Other Visions and to publish a number of other books, including Imogene Cunningham, A Portrait. She is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, two Individual Artist Awards from the National Endowment for the Arts, and has twice been visiting artist at the American Academy in Rome. Judy Dater lives in Berkeley, California with her husband. And joining us in the WFIU studio is Jeff Wolin, Ruth N. Hall's Professor of Photography in the Hope School of Fine Arts at Indiana University. Thanks for joining the conversation, Jeff. It's great to be here. So, Judy, of course, I'd like to start at the beginning. You're a California girl. Yes, I am. You were born in Hollywood, and your father owned a movie theater. So tell us about your early life and how it set you on your path. Well, yes, I was born in Hollywood. I love to tell people that. (laughs) And I grew up in L.A., partly in my dad's movie theater, starting at a very early age. He would take me uh, with him on Saturdays, and we would first go to the popcorn factory, and where they made popcorn in these huge drums and these funny big warehouse building. And it was before they had popcorn popping machines in the movie theaters. So they'd throw it in a case and keep it warm with, with a light. Anyway, I was, I was very young, and I, I used to love to play in the movie theater and run down the aisles in the dark and play this little game with myself where uh, I was afraid of the dark at that age, and I would... Um, I would go into the theater, it would be pitch black, and I would try to see how far down the aisle I could get before I would panic and run back. And once or twice I made it to the front of the theater, and I would touch the stage, and I would turn around and run out of the theater. So I think that has something to do with uh, why I ended up working in a dark room. <laughs> <laughs> so it was magical to visit Dad at the office, in other words? It was. It was. It was my, it was my one, one day that I got to hang out with him by myself. And um, anyway, I worked in the movie theater as a cashier when I was going to high school. I always thought it was the best job I ever had. I would take the same 10-minute breaks every time and see the same 10 minutes of the movie (laughs) (laughs) and try to sit there for the, you know, another 30 seconds before I had to go back and go back to work. So yeah, I spent a lot of time looking at films. And I'm sure that that had an influence on my photography looking at the stars, looking at the big faces blown up on the screen. I've always been interested in portraiture mm-hmm. and people, and I'm I'm convinced it came from looking at movies since I was as, as young as I can remember. Yeah, any movies that stand out from that time? Well, um, I would have birthday parties there when I was a kid, and my father would try to show movies that kids would like. So I kind of remember Ma and Pa Kettle movies <laughs> and Abbott and Costello movies. But, oh, I, I remember, you know, romantic movies with Fred Astaire and uh, Humphrey Bogart that I think formed my idea of what it was like to have a relationship. And I, I was surprised when I 
got much older, and I, I lived in Palo Alto for a while, and there was a movie theater there uh, called the Stanford Theater that would show films from the 50s and 60s. And I got obsessed with looking at these films when I was in my 50s. I saw them, and then I sort of had this epiphany. It was like, oh, my God, no wonder I've made so many <laughs> mistakes with my relationships, because I got all these ideas from looking at these movies <laughs> from that period. That's funny. Well, you went on from your early days as a movie theater girl to study photography. You went to UCLA and then later to San Francisco State, and this was the 60s. What a time to be studying photography in California I'd love to know more about that milieu, the people you were meeting at the time, and also the historical precedents, art that you were being exposed to, the photographers who became important to you, and the people that you met. Well, I when I was going to UCLA, I went there for my first three years of college, and I was an art major, but I didn't take any photography. And then I married and moved to San Francisco. And so my last, my last year of school, I went to San Francisco State, and I finally got into a photography class. That was 1963. They like to refer to that at San Francisco State as a sort of the golden era of photography. And I studied with Jack Wellpot, who I later married. It was an incredibly exciting and fertile time for photography. And besides my fellow students, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Ansel Adams and Wynn Bullock and Brett Weston and Imogene Cunningham and I met all of them at a uh, seminar when I was just a beginning photography student. I think it was in 19, must have been 63 or 64. And uh, the seminar was on the life and work of Edward Weston, and it was taking place at Big Sur Hot Springs, which later became Esalen. At that seminar, all these people were sitting around a table talking about Edward Weston and his work. And Imogen was on the panel, and Ansel was on the panel, and she was constantly uh, teasing Ansel. That was sort of like her thing. She loved to give him a hard time. I was about 20 years old at the time, and here's this funny lady with, you know, the white hair wearing the little beanie cap and peace uh, symbol suspenders and very outspoken. And I'd never, I'd never encountered anybody like that in my life. So I was just awestruck by her. And she came up to me afterwards, and she asked if she could do a portrait of me. I mean, I was speechless. I said, oh, you know, sure, of course. And so she took me outside. She had some vision, and she stuck me up against an old building, and she took this picture of me. And then she said, okay, now, well, when you get back to San Francisco, you call me up, and I'll give you a print. And so I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> and I, I didn't really know. I knew who she was, but I didn't really get exactly what this was all about. So I did. I, I went back and I called her a few weeks later. I mean, I thought, well, gee, I guess I should do that. And anyway, so she invited me over and she gave me this photograph she had done of me. And that's how I became friends with Imogen. She's such an important uh, figure in the history of photography, and she became a mentor to you. And And I, I had that relationship with Andrei Kertész, the Hungarian mm -hmm. photographer. I was a young photographer, and, you know, for some time we – he taught me the ropes. Mm -hmm. And I know how important that was for me. What was it like for you as a young photographer to have somebody as respected as that, as important as that, as interesting as that, take an interest in you and, and show you the ropes? Oh, it was very important. First of all, she was a woman, 
and she was so independent and so focused on her work, but also interested in so many other things. I mean, she had a broad range of interests from poetry to botany. She had an incredible garden. She would go to the San Francisco Horticultural Society meetings, which she took me to once. She was just, uh, she was my idol. I mean, she was an incredible role model for me at that point in time. She made it possible for me to see that photography was something that you could actually take seriously and do as a profession. And as a way of life, I mean, well, it was kind of in the air then, and I think in a different way than it is now. But all the people that I met at that time, including Imogen, of course, which was Ansel and Brett and Wynne Bullock, they were sort of the ones we would visit as students. We would get to go down and sit in their living rooms and watch them hold forth. They all were inspiring in terms of seeing that this is uh, something that you could actually do as a profession. And they were all doing it you know, very quietly and in their own way. And it was kind of before photography became as big a deal as it is today. And they had made various, I think, financial sacrifices to do their work. And they just did it because they loved it. And not because they were going to get famous. They were kind of famous, but nothing like... It was a smaller smaller world It was a much smaller world. People didn't have the same kind of star power that they do today. But Imogen was my special one because I think because she was a woman and she was an older person and, and it was both things. I mean, she was this incredibly vital older woman who worked practically up until the day she died. She died at 93. I never thought she would die at all mm-hmm. because she never was sick. I never saw her sick a day in her life. She was always just kind of doing her thing and having that kind of a person as a role model it was very inspiring to me. Didn't she do a whole body of work on on really aged people? She Uh, did. Yeah. Yeah. Her book called um, After 90. And it was something she was trying to do for herself to show that people could still have a life after 90. Mm. It was a beautiful collection of photographs. So uh, in addition to photography slowly becoming an art that was accepted by mainstream art world during the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, you have the increasing role of women photographers in that world. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, Naomi Rosenblum did the book uh, about women, photo- the history of women photographers, mm-hmm. and you were included in that uh, in that book, right. uh, as was uh, you know early precedents like Julia Margaret Cameron and of course Imogen and Bork White and and Dorothea Lange and Bernice Abbott and and I just wonder where you see yourself in that relationship of of women photographers, how you were influenced by the whole photogra- history of photography, but more specifically by uh, by these women who were groundbreaking artists? Well, I always thought that my work goes way back and that I was influenced by Julia Margaret Cameron and maybe the biggest early influence. She did these portraits of these Victorian women, these large heads that were very expressive. They had very strong emotional expressions on their faces, and I was very struck by that. There are many women photographers' works, which I love, like Bernice Abbott, for instance. In fact, uh, this is a funny story. One of my f- my first big break came when I had a show in New York City at the Whitkin Gallery. I'm not sure what year it was, but it was in the early 70s, I think. And I had shown at the gallery with three other California photographers maybe a year or so before that. And that was that was very nice. And then a year or so later, Lee Whitkin wanted to give me a bigger show. And so he was going to pair me with Bernice Abbott. 
And she was going to have the main show in the bigger gallery, and I was going to have the smaller show in the back gallery. I was ecstatic. And when she got the announcement, first of all, she saw that Jerry Ulesman was going to have the show after us, and he was getting the whole gallery. <laughs> and so he, she got this announcement with me and her, and she told Lee Wicken, you know, I want the whole exhibit, so I'm pulling out of the show. And it was this was at the last minute, so Lee Wicken asked me, well, do you think you can fill the front gallery? And so I said, well, I don't know. I guess so. I think so. So I ended up having the main show in that gallery, and that show was a big hit. And I got a really good review from A.D. Coleman at the time, and it kind of put me on the map. So I have I have her to thank, even yeah. though I, I love her work. <laughs> <laughs> kind of by default. Yes. Uh, so another um, image, of course, that put you on the map is this image that you haven't been able to get away from your entire <laughs> career I, of Imogen and Twinka in Yosemite in 1974. Would you tell us about the circumstance that led to that image and how that particular image came to occupy such a huge role in the cultural consciousness? Oh, sure. Something that people don't know is that that picture didn't come out of nowhere. Um, it was it was an idea that I had in my head for years and years, and it sort of formed itself from a painting that I used to look at that was in a book that my parents had called Great American Paintings. And the painting is called Persephone by Thomas Hart Benton. And I was always fascinated with that painting since I was a young child. And it shows a beautiful naked woman lying on a red velvet robe that's sort of draped along the base of a tree, and there's this gnarled old farmer peeking around the tree at her, and she doesn't know that he's looking at her. I was very fascinated with this idea, this whole idea of voyeurism. So I started making photographs really early, before the Imogen and Twinka picture happened. I made various iterations of that idea of a nude woman standing outside of a building with another woman looking out a window at her. And I have a picture of a nude woman standing inside of a room with a dog looking in the door. And there's another, I don't know, there's a couple of other variations on the theme. Finally, after, I don't know, I think the first picture maybe started in 68, and then every year or two there was another one. And I kept trying to work out this idea. And I was at a workshop on the nude, one of these Ansel Adams workshops in Yosemite, and Imogen was teaching and I was teaching. And we were out in the forest with a bunch of students, and I was sitting on this log next to Imogen, and we were watching people kind of wandering around the woods, and I was feeling a little guilty, and I thought, well, here I am. I'm supposed to be teaching somebody something, and I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting here. <laughs> Maybe I should do a demonstration. So I said, would you be in the picture? And Twinka was there as one of the models, and I got them. I got Twinka, and I told the students to get behind me, and I had my 4 by 5 view camera, and I set it up, and I told Imogen, you stand over there, and Twinka, you stand over here, and um, let's see what happens. So anyway, I took four shots, I think, and that one, Twinka turned and looked at Imogen at that one moment, and I said, oh, that's it. That's the one. And they were looking at each other. And it was kind of a twist on that idea of the voyeurism because she wasn't being looked at now. They were actually confronting each other and looking at each other. And I think it has broader meanings now than 
than just the idea of the voyeuristic. To me, that photograph always resonated with the idea, not just of photography, but of aging, that they're also looking across this generational uh, divide as well and seeing each other. Right. And meeting each other. And, and that's one of the levels that I really enjoy about that photograph and why I think it continues to resonate, you know, with me over time. Yes, thanks. I, I actually think that it has a lot to do with youth and old age confronting each other. And she's looking back at what she might have been as a as a young person, and Twinka's looking at her as an aging person. And then, of course, there were all these students behind me taking pictures over my shoulder, so there was that whole other level, and some of those pictures have surfaced. Well, in terms of the way that it recasts the gaze, I mean... Much ink has been spilled. It sounds as though you had been working out this idea of voyeurism and looking at the female nude for a while. Would you say that those efforts were explicitly feminist? Were you part of the feminist milieu or the women's rights movement at that time? Were you making this image as a way of talking about the way women see or the way women are seen? Um I I wasn't. I was aware of the women's movement, but I wasn't politically active, though, of course, now I think, well, it was just part of the ethos. It was just part of what was going on, and I was part of it, and I was at the right age and uh, kind of at the right place in the right time, and this stuff was just kind of coming out of me without too much consciousness, mm -hmm. and, and that's really the way I work all the time. I mean, I can have concepts, but I think the bulk of my work is about telling stories and it and they come from my gut and my intuition. And I think that what I was doing then just fit in perfectly with kind of what was going on around me. Though I had plenty of criticism from other women that I was photographing only beautiful women hmm. and somehow that wasn't okay. I mean, I thought they were beautiful, but a lots of them were unconventionally beautiful, and I, I'm not quite sure what I wasn't doing to please them. But <laughs> anyway, I didn't really care. I mean, I was doing what I needed to do and what I yeah. wanted to do. But now I'm perfectly comfortable with the whole idea of being a feminist, and I would never say I wasn't one. I just wasn't one on the, on the same conscious political level that I that some other people were at that point in time. Pursuing that idea of your subject matter and what you have chosen to focus on. You've obviously photographed both men and women, but you're most associated with portraits of women and more particularly portraits of female nudes. So I'm curious about why it is that this particular subject was something that allowed you to communicate what you needed to communicate. Well, it's funny. I've probably done less nudes than I have portraits. and um, But Nudes are always what people remember. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. I mean, I have done, I've done my share of nudes, but I never thought of myself as a photographer of nudes. I thought of myself more as a photographer of people and portraits than, than actually the nude, but there are plenty of nudes. So I, I think that at that time, I was, I was trying to figure out who I was, and by photographing women that were around my age and that were in similar life circumstances that were involved in the arts or around the arts or artists that somehow I'd learned stuff about myself. I don't know that I learned stuff about myself, but it made me feel okay about being in the world. <laughs> the photographs were, I used to say, they were partly self-portrait. Maybe I wasn't physically photographing myself, 
though I've done plenty of that. But I was photographing these women that I could identify with. And they were reflecting back to me maybe what I was, and I was maybe reflecting to them some things about themselves, and it was kind of a give and take. I I think that that's true when you're photographing people. You've got to put yourself out there and give something to the person you're photographing about yourself so that they can give you something back. So it was it was a kind of an exchange. There's an aspect of your work that, that I really admire, which is a sense of a psychological portrait. It's not just the visage, you know, not just the outlines of the person, but uh, they're, they're almost always in an environment where the environment interacts with the person and the person with the environment. Your sense of lighting is consistent and controlled. And, uh, of course, working with a 4x5 view camera, which I don't know if all your listeners know, but uh, is a harkens back to the 19th century and Julia Margaret Cameron and an older way of working that's much slower and more deliberate and where you're actually seeing the entire frame of the photograph and in control of things. But it slows the interaction down between the subject and the photographer. I'd love for you to talk about that aspect, if you agree with it, the, psycho- the aspect mm-hmm. of a psychological portrait and what it what it means to you and how you employed that. No, I totally agree with that, and I've always been interested in the idea of psychology in regard to portraiture. And um, you're right. My early work, I would uh, use people's environments, and that was both true with the early women photographs and the photographs of men, and I would go to their homes or wherever they were and look around and try to find a setting in their home where the light was good, because I only use natural light, very 19th century. Mm. And uh, once I found um, sort of the right setting, I would ask the person to go sit in that setting or lie in that setting or whatever, stand. And then I would start to work with them in terms of how I wanted them to pose and what kinds of expressions I wanted on their faces. I mean, it was very directorial. And I would take a lot of photographs. It seemed like it would take 20 minutes or so until the person would kind of relax Mm -hmm. and forget about the fact that I'm photographing them. I mean, they're not forgetting really because I'm there with a big camera, but they would start to feel more comfortable. And I felt I had to talk to them. I had to direct them. And eventually they might let down their guard and then something personal could come, come out of them. I mean, I thought of them all as kind of actors and that they would be performing for me. And I was just trying to get them to uh, maybe let their guard down a little bit and make themselves vulnerable, but not in a bad way, <laughs> in order to let some some kind of um, expression out that other people could relate to that was uh, kind of a universal feeling. I, I still do that when I do portraits, and it doesn't really matter now if it's in my studio or their house or whatever. And and starting in the 90s, uh, late 90s, I kind of abandoned the idea of props and environments, and I started just doing big headshots of people um, with a plain black background um, and, and mostly just trying to work with the kind of expressions that I could get on people, out of people. And it was... It was harder in a way because I had less things to fall back on. It was just the face, really, and the expression. And I I became very interested in that. Were they chosen for their visual uh, impact just to add uh, to the aesthetic? Well, the earlier work, oh, probably the later work too, but the early work for sure I was looking for people that um, I just found visually 
interesting. The women that I thought were unusual looking or had interesting faces or great costumes that they were wearing. I mean, the clothing was important. I wasn't looking for people that were conventionally beautiful or pretty. I was looking for people that were more, to me, more exotic, more interesting. And the more recent work, the first body of work I did was uh, portraits in Rome, and I was looking for people that had faces that were similar to the faces that you see in the Renaissance paintings. (laughs) And I thought, well, these faces didn't come out of nowhere. These painters were painting real people that lived in Italy. So then I started very specifically looking for people in Rome. I was in Rome for a while that looked like the people in these paintings. If I can interrupt just for a moment... How does that actually happen, where you see a face on a street and it looks like it comes right out of a a Renaissance painting? What do you do? You flag them down. You say, hi, I'm Judy Dater. Will you pose for me? How how do you actually go about that? Well, that project, um, I I had it in mind to do before I went to Rome, and I researched uh, through friends uh, somebody in Rome that, would be my assistant and that spoke Italian because I don't speak Italian other than Parmigiana and (laughs) (laughs) Cacciatore and things like that. But anyway, I found found a young man who was a film student and who needed to make a few bucks and who said he would be my interpreter. So anyway, I hired him and... He would go around with me in Rome, and we would sit in cafes and drink espressos. And if I saw someone when they came in, I would say, would you please go ask that person for me? And and he did. He was really good. And no one ever said no. I was going to ask, what was your success rate it like? Was, it was very high. Uh, this was when I was staying at the American Academy. And there were people in the Academy that were coming and going that I commandeered. The gardener had a great face. You know, some of the people that worked there looked like these people. Um, Some of the friends of people that were staying there, plus the people on the street in the cafes, and even my assistant after a while, he saw what I was doing, and he brought me people. He got totally what I was up to, and he he had a few friends that had the (laughs) right kind of faces. So that's how that project happened. And then I kind of expanded on it, and I wanted to be more loose with the photography because these were all with 4 by 5 and in the studio there. And I I was also walking around on the street and wanting to do more candid photography. Not candid, but street pictures, street portraits. And we would walk around together on the street and st- just stop people and put them up against a building and and take their picture. But people were very open and willing to do it. I thought, Judy, that since we were speaking about Italy, it might be a great time to introduce the music Ah. that you have chosen to share with our audience. It's O Mio Babino Caro, and it's from the opera Gianni Schicchi. I I love this piece of music because it's so romantic. I I am an absolutely diehard, dyed-in-the-wool romantic person. And every time I hear this music, I just kind of melt and I love opera. This particular piece, the daughter of Skiki, her name is Loretta, she sings this aria to her father, telling him how much she loves her Renuccio, 
they're maybe not going to be able to be together. And she's saying, no, I love him so much, Father. I have to be with him. I love him. I love him. And my husband and I hired an opera singer to sing this piece at our wedding. So it's, it has very special meaning to me. Oh, that's terrific. All right. Well, then let's hear Renee Fleming singing Oh Mio Babino Caro from Gianni Schicchi. Mio Babino Caro from the opera Gianni Schicchi, sung by Renee Fleming, a selection by our guest today, the photographer Judy Dater. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. I'm Yael Cassander, here with Jeff Wollin, speaking specifically about representing one's own body and picturing the female body from one's own point of view brings to mind that collaboration with Jack Wellpot that resulted in the 1975 book, Women and Other Visions. The really fascinating aspect of that, to me, being the contrast between the way a man sees a woman and the way a woman sees that same woman. Was that, again, an intended comparison that you two were uh, trying to achieve? Yes, definitely. I mean, he was working the way he would work if I hadn't been there, you know, dealing with the woman on his terms and she responding to him as a man. And I was working as a woman with the, with the woman through my own ideas and my own vision of what she was and and what I am and having my own sense of empathy with her so i think i think the pictures are quite different in terms of their feeling and the intent that book was so important when it came out i was in graduate school in rochester and it was just so influential the, the only thing i can compare it to is when the Di- diane arbus catalog came out. It was just so influential in terms of the aesthetic, the large format portraiture, uh, environmental portraiture. The idea that it was a collaboration, it's very commonplace now for artists to collaborate and make art together. But in those days, it was unusual. And for a male and a female to collaborate, and then to, to, to collaborate on this very charged subject matter was fascinating. And then the book had so many interesting layers and subtleties with the little male and female symbols by the pagination that to indicate whether the photographer was was male or female. Very often the same model would be photographed by by the two of you. 
I'd love to know more about that. I, I, I got to know Jack a little bit before he died, and, and I, was, I thought he was awesome. Uh, Jack Wellpot, your collaborator on this project, was from Bloomington, uh, went to IU. He was one of our illustrious graduates, so, so I always felt a connection there mm-hmm. too. And Henry Smith, who was my predecessor here, wrote the really fascinating introduction to the book, I'd love to know more about how that collaboration worked. Were, were, was there tension sometimes? Did it work seamlessly? Were you both in the same place at the same time and then took turns? How did it go? <laughs> well, it it came about because, you know, I was Jack's student, and Jack had always photographed women as part of what he did. And it was something that I gravitated to very early on in my photography. And... I was photographing some of my fellow students, and he also had photographed some of these same people. And he and I got very close. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about the fact that we had both photographed some of these same people. And we thought, well, hmm, wouldn't that be interesting if we actually tried to do this as a thing, photographing some of the same people? Because we already did it, but with unconsciously. So we just kind of said, okay, let's try to do this thing. And when we were together, if we saw somebody that we both found visually interesting, we'd say, well, how about her? <laughs> and then one or the other of us would ask the person if we could photograph them. And sometimes it, sometimes I would pick the person, sometimes he would pick the person. And we met these people in various places, you know, standing in line at the bank or <laughs> at a party or at an opening or, you know, wherever. But they're all, they were all Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area types. When we were both photographing the same person, what we did was set up an appointment with them, set up a time. We would both go together to their house, and we would take turns photographing them. We never photographed together. It was always, if he was working, he'd work with them for half an hour, 45 minutes, and I would be in the other room and then we would switch, and then I would work, and he would go do something else. So we weren't, like, watching each other photograph. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to stay out of each other's way. So we were individually dealing with the same person at the same time, but not simultaneously. Then he'd print the ones he liked, and I'd print the ones I liked. And <laughs> <laughs> It's such an interesting documentation of so many layers of the culture at that time. San Francisco was sort of the epicenter of the sexual revolution, you know, Haight-Ashbury and the drug culture. Mm-hmm. The 60s is so synonymous with, you know, the Bay Area. And you were there yes. <laughs> photographing these fascinating individuals who were just part of the milieu. Right. I mean, at the time, did you realize this was a special moment in time? Or did you think, well, this is just what's there? Um, well, I knew it was a special moment in time for myself. I felt like um, I was ecstatic when the 60s hit. <laughs> I thought, oh, finally, the world is coming to its senses. Because <laughs> I, I I loved the freedom of it. Of course, it coincided with, you know, I finally moved away from home. I was 20. I was in San Francisco. It was the 60s. I mean, it was fabulous. And so on a personal level, it, sem- it felt like a really special time. And it really, I really felt like things were really changing. They really changed from the 50s to the 60s. It was like huge. But I, I didn't know how it was going to be perceived years down the line in that regard. You know, I didn't even put it together until recently. I saw the show at the Oakland Museum called 1968. 
and all the amazing things that happened mm-hmm. in 1968. Mm-hmm. Even I was amazed. I mean, mm-hmm. I remembered all the events, but I couldn't I couldn't really remember that they all happened in 68. So I was I wasn't conscious of it in that regard, but but I knew something big was going on. Judy, if we could go back and talk a little bit more about your iconic uh, portrait of of Imogen Cunningham photographing a model. The way I interpret that image, and again, there are so many interpretations of that. That's one of the reasons it's such a great photograph. In in a sense, you are all the figures. You're the photographer taking the picture, but you're the photographer in the picture. Imogen represents you as well. You're also the model. Each one is is an aspect of of who you are. Uh, And the photograph is of, of youth and age. And to me, because the reference of the, of the camera and the photographer, I think, too, about the life cycle of a photographer, of an artist, not just of anybody, but of, specifically of a photographer, how uh, when you're young, you have certain dreams and aspirations, and then you have a career and a mid-career and a later career. And uh, you have, as successful as you are, there's ups and downs in, in that career. You know John Zarkowski, who showed your work in, uh, in uh, Mirrors and Windows, mm-hmm. I think? Uh, one of the most important shows MoMA did in, uh, you know, in, in that time. We should define John Sharkowski, the longtime curator of photography at the MoMA. At the, right, at the Museum of Modern Art. He had, for his own reasons, I suppose, an idea that photographers had about a 10-year window. Uh, and, and after that, they were really just repeating themselves endlessly. And, and there are so many examples where that's not true, but there are examples where, where that's true. Could you talk about that, your notion of uh, of a career and a life cycle, and, and in some ways perhaps going back to that photograph, how it sort of embodies some of those aspects? Well, that's funny you would bring that up because when you started that, that was exactly what I thought of, was remembering him saying that. And I, he said that to me. I think he said it to everybody. <laughs> and I always thought it was a great insult. And I th- a part, like, I think part of what happened with me is, you know, I, I heard him say it, and I took it, and I ran with it, and I thought to myself, well, I'll show you, <laughs> because I just found it to be a kind of um, obnoxious thing to say. <laughs> so part of what propelled me was that I didn't want to keep repeating myself endlessly forever and ever, and that I was photographing women, and the women is what put me on the map, and... Um, I thought after a while, after doing doing them for I don't know how many years, 10, 12 years, that I wanted to stop photographing women and start doing something else because I really didn't want to get typecast as a photographer that only photographed women. So the next project that I came up with was to photograph men <laughs> because I thought, well, I'm a people photographer, so you know, I guess that's what we do next. So I asked Jack Wilpot at the time, well, do you want to do a collaboration of photographs of, of men? Because we had done the collaboration of photographs of women and in the book that came out, Women and Other Visions. And no, he wasn't interested in photographing men at all. So um, <laughs> I said, well, then I guess I'm going to have to do it without you, and you do your thing and I'll do mine. So I started photographing men, both nude and not nude. You know, the the women photographs kind of was tapering off and kind of ended with the Imogen and Twinka picture. That was kind of the the big period at the end of that project. But I had started doing a few photographs of men, you know, a year or two before that. So they kind of morphed one into the other. And then I kept kept going with the men. And that project went till, I don't know, maybe 1979. And I didn't have nearly as much interest in the photographs I'd done of men as I had with the women. 
and I had a lot of trouble getting the male nudes particularly exhibited and shown. There was one person, one curator, who was interested in it and a supporter, and that was uh, Teresa Heyman, who was at the Oakland Museum in California, and she gave me a show of the male nudes in, I think, 76 or 77. But mostly people wouldn't want to touch them. They didn't want to exhibit them or certainly not print them. None of the popular photography magazines that were happy to print the female nudes mm-hmm. weren't going to print the male nudes. So that was a little discouraging, but one goes on. <laughs> so the next thing I did, which has to do with aging for sure, was I started doing self-portraits. They kind of developed out of going on some car trips with a fellow photographer, a friend of mine, Gail Scoff, and we were traveling in the West in the landscape, and she was doing landscape photography, and I was photographing myself in the landscape. That turned into another sort of self-discovery thing. I was I was about to turn 40, and I thought 40 was, you know, a big deal at the time. <laughs> now I think it's hilarious, but anyway, at the time it seemed like a big deal to turn 40. So it was a way of kind of trying to place myself in the world and taking stock of who I was and where I was and what I was doing in uh, placing myself in these very remote uh, situations in the landscape. Those photographs are just primal. I'm thinking especially of the one of you in fetal position on a very cracked, arid landscape that looks almost like the moon. And there's another one, in fact, where you do see the uh, shadow of the tripod. And then there you are off in the distance. And I think it's called something like... uh, It's Craters of the Moon. The Craters of the Moon. That's a national park in Idaho. And it looks exactly like the moon surface. It looks like those pictures the astronauts took when they landed there. (laughs) You're talking about self-discovery and um, turning 40, the aging process, Mm -hmm. if one can talk about that at 40. Some of those photographs seem very liberating. At other times, I see there's a, a definite sort of analogy being drawn between, you know, the female and the landscape. What were the intended meanings for for you? Again, it was uh, fairly intuitive. I, I loved these kind of barren, arid landscapes. I, I liked the ruggedness of them, and I liked sort of pitting myself against it. Um, and the contrast between the jaggedness of the landscape and the softness of the body but not wanting to show the body in a kind of in a playboy way but more as integrated into the landscape as part of the natural scene and um, so I would I would sort of set the camera up and look at the landscape and think okay if I was going to do a landscape photograph just a landscape how would I structure it and how would I present it and then I would try to imagine if there was going to be a a figure in the landscape, where would it, where should it be? And so this is all kind of pre-visualization of looking at the scene and trying to imagine what it might look like if I had a, if I was working with a model, where would I put the model? But at that point, I didn't want to work with a, a model. I really wanted to work with myself, partly because I just liked the idea of not having another person to interact with except for myself and the whole feeling of what I was feeling about these places where I was, you know, the the feeling that I was getting from the landscape. I didn't want to have to worry about anybody else's ego at that point, <laughs> and I didn't want to put them in a, un, physically uncomfortable positions, which a lot of these photographs were not particularly pleasant to be lying on the ground and walking through grass that probably had rattlesnakes in it and things like that. So 
I, I, I like the game of it too, of like taking the picture and not really knowing what I was going to get until I went back and developed the film. I would set the scene up and I try to imagine where I wanted to be in the picture. I would practice it. I would go lie down and curl up like that so I knew what it felt like. And then I would go back and pull the slide out of the film holder and set the timer. I had like a 10-second exposure. And then I could run back and lie down where I was. I would focus on some little twig or a rock where I knew I was going to be. So that's how I managed to get myself in focus. <laughs> Those photographs look to me very free. We live in a society that is not always as free as um, as we might hope. And uh, someone who photographs nudes, as you have, um, is going to encounter some resistance. You mentioned the resistance that galleries have had and publications to publishing and showing your male nudes. There's always uh, the apprehension, and this especially accelerated in the 80s, um, with regard to the nude and what constitutes pornography. There are photographs I've read that even you at one point were unsure about, whether they were purely erotic, artistic, or pornographic, and that you didn't show. What for you constitutes the difference, or is it important? I'm not sure which photographs I thought were of my own that I ever thought were pornographic. Well, there's a few, <laughs> actually, <laughs> and I haven't shown them, and I won't show them. Um, Oh, maybe, oh, maybe those pictures are just purely sexual and don't really have any other meaning to them or artistic, you know, value. And, you know, ultimately, maybe they're not terribly interesting. I mean, they're just, they don't hold my interest. I like things that have some mystery and that have some multiple levels of meaning. And so those can have all kinds of things going on in them, but I would want them to be, you know, richer and... and be able to feed your imagination and your soul in a different way. So the, the funny thing about the male nudes is I don't think any of my male nudes are, are pornographic, certainly not the ones that I've shown or would want to show. Maybe it was more of a taboo against women looking at men um, because certainly Robert Maplethorpe got to show a lot of stuff that was much rougher than anything I ever did. Mm -hmm. And nobody had, well, there were plenty of people that had problems with it. Nonetheless, he had shows of it. <laughs> I, I think there might be some some aspect to the fact that I was a woman photographing the male nude rather than the male nude itself. When Imogen and Twinko was shown in the Life magazine in the 70s, mm -hmm. was there any kickback? Were, were there any issues that were raised by the general public or by that came back to you? Not from that, not that I recall. Somebody wanted to use it on a show announcement that I had once. It was at the at the De Sassé Museum at the University of Santa Clara, which is a Jesuit university, and they gave me a big show, and they put Imogen and Twinka on the announcement card, mm -hmm. and there was somebody that complained that it was a, an ageist photograph. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't the sexuality that No, <laughs> that's what came back from that, from that one. Jack and I had a, a show of the women and other visions in Japan, back in 76, I think it was. And we were invited over to spend a month in Japan and teach a workshop. And um, they wanted us to ship over a carton of books, 40 books, for people in the, that were taking the workshop. So we arranged to have the books sent. And they got hung up in customs in Japan. 
and they wouldn't let them through. And they went through the book page by page, and every page that had any pubic hair on it, somebody sat there with a, a needle and scratched all the pubic hair off of every page of every <laughs> book that went into Japan, which is really funny because they have such a tradition of <laughs> of pornography there. Anyway, that was that was very funny. I have one copy with the scratchings, which actually makes it <laughs> makes it look much more uh, por- pornographic, if you will, <laughs> than than the straight photographs. I mean, it's it's really funny. Speaking of reminiscences, let's fast forward to now, and your current work deals with memory and reminiscences. Would you tell us about memoir? Sure. Well, my, my most recent project, which I started working on a few years ago, which came about from some writing I did when I had been living in New York in 1989. I I was sort of between projects and not quite knowing what I wanted to do with my photography. And I was also between relationships. So I thought, I'm going to write about all the men in my life, starting with my father and up to the present and every single male relationship I could think of and maybe if I put it all down, I'll see what I've been doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wrote this thing. It was kind of a fat bunch of stuff. Typed it out on an old typewriter. And I also went through some of my photographs and pulled out a lot of the male nudes and made little line drawings from the photographs of the men, paired them up with the stories. And... I never really did anything with it. It was pretty rough, and it was really just an exercise I did for myself, and I titled it Confessions of a Practical Hedonist. And I put it away, and a few years ago, I was cleaning out my studio, and I found it, and I started looking at it, and I thought, huh, there's there's something here I could maybe use to make some new work with. And I thought, well, maybe I could do a memoir, but I'll do it in a different way. So I started to try to pare it down to just some of the funniest things that I could remember (laughs) that at the time seemed tragic, but when I look back on them now, they just seem funny. And they also seem to be kind of, some of them, somewhat universal that other people would have experienced in, in relationship dealings. So... I made many attempts to make this into a visual form. And first by doing drawings with just one-liner things, and I couldn't figure out how to make them big. So that that really didn't work. And then I said, well, I'm really actually a photographer, so forget the drawing, let's use photographs. And so I started going through some of my old photographs and pairing them up with some of the text. And I thought I need to figure out a way to actually put my ha- my physical handwriting on these things. It'll make it more personal than uh, using a font from the computer. So I, I, f- I finally managed to hit on the idea of making each page look like a scrapbook or a photo album. So I would pair up photographs with a line that related to the photographs that sort of enhanced the story. There's one, for example, that I saw of your first wedding. Ah, yes. So that one says, um, I knew this wasn't the guy for me, but it seemed way too late to back out now. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And then there's there's another one that says, 
he whispered, my wife and daughters are here. Just act natural. <laughs> and then it says, where did you get that dress, she asked. It's exactly like the ones he brought back for the girls. I needed a real drink. <laughs> so I paired that up with various photographs. It got conceived where I started in the middle, which was probably when I was in my 30s, and all my male escapades, the bulk of them were kind of going on around me. And I told a lot of stories about the men. And then I thought, well, hey, uh, there's a lot more to my life than just this. And so I thought, okay, well, let's go back to the beginning. And so I started jumping around. I started the memoir with the day that I was born, which has, talks about my father in the movie business and the theater. I was born on June 21st, 1941, first day of summer. Always felt like a wonderful, perfect day for me. And I projected it out 100 years. So the last page is 100 years from the day I was born. And then I just started filling in the blanks. So I started in the middle, and then I went back and forth and jumped around back and forth, sort of telling my story. And it was things that I remembered that seemed significant of various things that happened over my lifetime, including the assassination of Kennedy and uh, various wars and the women's movement and sort of all of the major events that have played out over my lifetime. And the project has been exhibited, but also exists in book form and video? Well, it, it, it was exhibited in large format prints, wall prints that are something like 42 inches by 53 inches. And then there's a portfolio, a small portfolio of the whole set of pictures, which is 36 pages, which is smaller. And then I had a video. I made a video out of it that's kind of an animated video with me reading the story. Well, that project takes us full circle. We'll close with your final music selection. All right. So, My Funny Valentine, it's one of my favorite songs. It, again, has to do with me being a romantic. I think what I like about it is that it talks about being in love with someone who's not perfect. And none of us are perfect. And the lyrics are just fantastic. And uh, Rogers and Hart song from a musical called... Babes in Arms, I think, from 1937. And everybody has recorded it. And I don't care who records it. I always like to hear it. It doesn't really matter. But Sarah Vaughan is one of my favorite jazz singers. And she's recorded it many times. This recording that I really love is from the 50s. I think it's kind of her middle period. Her voice is really beautiful and mellow. And um, she's just a fantastic singer. And I love the way she interprets the song. Well, thanks. Let's let's have it then. My Funny Valentine, sung by Sarah Vaughn. Our guest on Profiles today has been the photographer Judy Dater, and we've been joined by photographer Jeff Wolin. It's been my pleasure to speak with you both today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Yael. For WFIU's Profiles, I'm Yael Cassander. My Funny
Your looks are laughable The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2013. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.